good to see you guys. Welcome to Portico Church Arlington. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here. And yeah, it's a beautiful Sunday. Thank you for joining us here to worship God. Did you guys hear that there's a new quarterback in town? Nobody really cares. I know. It's interesting, though. The Washington football team, now called the Commanders, have recently gotten a new quarterback. Used to be the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles, Carson Wentz. And they're rivals, so I'm told. I'm not from these parts, so I don't know all of the football rivalries and such. But I was thinking about what it might be like to be Carson Wentz, where you play for most of your career for one team, and you're going against the other team. And so you learn kind of like their proclivities. You learn how to beat them. You learn things like don't throw it to the guys in the red uniforms, throw it to the guys in the green uniforms. And then all of a sudden, like something happens, and you just have to switch it. And now you're playing for a different team, and you have to relearn other things, things that were just kind of like mental habits, muscle memory for you, like throw it to the guy who's open, Oh no, he is on the wrong team now. You have to relearn that. And I thought that that was kind of an interesting way to think of the Christian life and what happens when, um, really, if for your, our whole lives as Christians, what we do is like we have kind of like this muscle memory instinct to be the Lord of our own lives, to do what we want to do, to make everything in our life about us. But then, when we know the Lord, when we trust him, when we are saved, when we're walking in his promises, we have to relearn some of those muscle memories. And I thought that was a good way of understanding the book of James, um, and especially this portion that we're going to look at today. We're covering chapter four today, which is a lot. Um, and so we're going to cover it pretty quickly. I'm not going to cover everything that I could say about it because we'd be here for too long, um, but we're going to get a really good picture of what it looks like to receive God's grace and how that brings us victory, how God's grace actually brings us victory. And so I'm not going to read it all in one chunk. Instead, I want to actually kind of read it with you as we go through the material and so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into this first section of it. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, again for this book, how clear it is, how practical it is. Um, and yet today, Lord, as we, as we look at this next section, um, it's majestic. It is um, cutting through a lot of um, the ordinariness of our lives. And it meets us in our everyday, our everyday lives, and it shows us how, um, how glorious it is to be met by you in there. And so, God, I ask that you would just use it, that you would use it to form new habits, that you would use it to, um, to help us to know your grace better, that we would know our need for it, that we would know your value and your ability to deliver us in more profound ways. Um, and so, Lord, I ask that you would be here with us, as even as we are going to look at what it means to draw near to you and you draw near to us, that that would happen here this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in James chapter 4, and the controlling metaphor of this chapter 
is warfare. So, so far, James has kind of been talking about um, how to live the Christian life, and he's been hitting different categories, like how you talk, how you use your money, how you desire even, like the things that you desire, how you treat people, how you treat the poor. And today, he's going to kind of show the relevance and the power of all of those things. And so he uses this um, kind of this really grandiose metaphor of warfare to help us understand how important this stuff is. Because it's everyday things. It's things that we do every day. And we don't really understand a lot of the time the significance of it. And that's part of the warfare metaphor even, is that we are deceived at the power of our own interactions, the power of our words, the power of our desires. We're deceived into thinking that it's no big deal when James is going to tell us, no, you are deceived. There's nothing more important than this. And so we're going to look at kind of, what, okay, so warfare, what is the cause of war? Like, what is the cause of this warfare that James is going to take us into? And then we're going to see the cost of war, and then finally the end of war. So look, let's look at the cause of war. This is in verses 1 through 3. Yes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Those are ways of translating a word that usually means just battles or wars. Like what causes battles and wars among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So what causes war? And what, what's the nature of this war? Well, James is looking at this early church and he's seeing kind of warring factions start to break out. And this doesn't mean that they're literally going to war against each other, but it's interpersonal conflict. It's division within the churches. It's a kind of chasm developing between the rich and the poor, the have, the have-nots, the powerful, and the humble. And what he's saying is, the thing that is causing this is your desires, your passions, your lusts. You're a bottomless pit of craving. And you can't stop no matter how much you have. You can't stop. And so you'll just consume one another. Your passions at war within you are the cause of this war. So your passions are not united, right? That's one of the themes of James is kind of uniting our hearts, desiring one thing, desiring the glory of God above all else. That's the only one thing that we actually can desire. As soon as we desire something else, we're split. And now our passions are at war within us. And these warring passions go external. It's like, I don't have that. I want that. I don't have it. That person has it. So you murder them. Remember, he's using this language in the same way that Jesus is using it in the Sermon on the Mount, where it creates anger. It creates kind of like this envy that just seeps into your bones so that you despise somebody. 
And it motivates you to take what God has not given you. And then you covet, but you can't obtain. That's another problem that these passions are creating. It's like, okay, sometimes you can get what you want by murdering, and sometimes you really want something, but you can't get it. And he's saying you don't, fighting and quarreling is not the way to get it, but asking God is. So asking God, realizing that it's not in my power to obtain this thing that I want. So I need to ask God. But don't we turn God into kind of like a vending machine? We expect him to just give us then what we want. It's like, oh, okay, so that's, that's the trick. That's the hack to me getting what I want, is that I just have to go to God and ask him for whatever I want, and then he's supposed to give it to me. In verse 3, he says, you ask and do not deceive because you, you, and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he's showing you that you can't trick God. You can't go to God with a divided heart. You can't go to God with a heart that wants your own way, that's not receptive to him, that's not submissive to him, and expect to receive what you want. Your desires are disordered. When you do that, they're selfish. They're self-promoting. And that is the ultimate theme that James has been teaching us, is that the Christian life is a humble life. Christians need to be marked by their humility. And this was in response to kind of the culture that um, the, a lot of the Jewish leaders had established at the time of Jesus' ministry. It was not one of humility. It was one of arrogance, of pride, of self-righteousness. And so James, as he's trying to form these Christian communities into disciples, into followers of Christ, he's pounding this home that you must be humble. And if you ask the Lord for anything with pride, it's hypocritical. You're coming to him as your own Lord, as if you are God, rather than coming to your Lord and submitting to him. These desires um, are just deeply connected to what we talked about last week, that worldly wisdom. It's kind of that progression of, oh, I am going to do things kind of with God a little bit separated, like, oh, he deals with the spiritual things, I deal with the earthly things, earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom, and then it's completely disconnected from any spiritual consequences or realities. It's unspiritual. And then finally, it turns into demonic wisdom. And what we're going to learn here is that that doesn't just stay how it is either. There's a progression, there's a development that happens even with that. And one of the, one of the ways that I think you can really understand this is by looking at what happens in kind of like an addiction. What happens when somebody is addicted to a substance? And there's a, there's a really good quote from a song Andrew Bird wrote that describes this. This describes this unsatisfiable lust that's at work in someone who's addicted. He says this, there's only so much wine that you can drink in one life, and it's never enough 
to save you from the bottom of your glass. There's only so much wine that you can drink in one life, and it's never enough to save you from the bottom of your glass. That is a picture of what causes fights among us, what fractures us, is that we become slaves to our own desires. We become slaves to what is going to be, in our own eyes, good for us. And then what happens is we actually become terrified of not getting that. But it's never enough, is it? How much more do you need? How much more will you need to satisfy that passion, to quench that thirst? It's never enough to save you from what you're afraid of most, and that is not having that. So this destructive conflict in and among the church is a sign that it's actually not primarily each other that you're at war with. We're getting into the cost of war now. So, so far he's been talking about this horizontal conflict, fighting with each other. But look at verse 4. It says, he's describing these people fighting with each other, and now he says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The cost of war is that we are actually at war with God. We are at war with God, the creator and ruler of the universe. When we do things the way of the world, when we operate in worldly wisdom, that becomes unspiritual, demonic, we actually become friends with the world. We become allies with all of the powers that are opposed and living in opposition to God. The cost of war is not that we break human relationships, though we do. The cost of war is that when you break those human relationships because of your passions, because of your lusts, because of your envy, It's making a statement about who you think God is and who you think you are. It's making a statement that is aligning yourself with the forces of Satan, the forces of evil. And so he uses strong language here. He's kind of switching metaphors a little bit. He's going from the battlefield to marriage, and he calls these people an adulterous people. It's the most powerful image that we can understand of the type of betrayal that happens when we kind of just dismiss God's way and do things on our own way. It's infidelity. It's a complete neglect of your promises and your vows. It's betrayal. It's calling them an adulterous people. And this would... This would really kind of hit hard for a Jewish audience because this is the language of the prophets. The prophets, when they were trying to call Israel to repentance, would use this imagery and say, Israel, you are the adulterous bride of God. You've betrayed him. You've turned from him. You're an adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
So there's a huge cost of war here. It doesn't stop there, though. Verse 5 says, okay, you've become an enemy of God. Do you think that God cares about that? Is that a big deal to God? Like, is it, is it really that important that I just ran over my friend because I wanted something that he had or he had something that I didn't get? Is that really that big of a deal? Well, in verse 5, he asks this kind of hypothetical question. He says, do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This enmity with God is not kind of just like, oh, that's too bad. But instead, we've provoked the jealousy of a holy, righteous, living, and active God who cares very deeply about everything. Now, I have to say, like this jealousy isn't what we think of when we think of human jealousy. When we think of human jealousy, like you know, we think of like a stalker or a boyfriend who doesn't want his girlfriend hanging out with other people. Um, That is not really at all what we're talking about here. Because in that kind of quote or summary of a lot of the Old Testament teaching, he says that God is actually in a completely different relationship. Like this isn't a even playing field. God has actually created us the soul that's within your body, your very essence, who you are at your core, he put there. It's his. It doesn't belong to you. We don't belong to ourselves as the world would teach us, where we can make, us, we can make of ourselves whatever we want. We belong to this God. And one day he will want that soul back. He will require your soul of you. And so this should evoke a little bit of fear for all of us. It's like if we truly understand that we have started a war with a God who is jealous for our souls and that we have tainted his creation and that we harm and damage image bearers that he has made and loves and cares about, We should be concerned. This isn't going to go well for us. This is not a war that we're going to be able to win. We're at war with an infinite, powerful, righteous, and holy God. Where where are we friends with the world in this way? Where do you see in yourself friendship with the world? Because we've already covered this. None of us is perfectly united in our desires for God. It's one of the impacts of the fall is that we're split, we're fractured. So what, what is it for you that you know is putting you at odds with God? Get in touch with that. If you don't know that, then none the rest of this passage won't make sense to you. You have to be willing to go there with yourself. You have to be willing to, to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, I belong to God and his word has just convicted me as an adulterous people. 
That's who we are. We need to hear that. He's not leaving any room for an outlier. We're an adulterous people at war with God. War with God only ends in your defeat that shows itself in humility or your destruction. He is not going to tolerate a soul that he created to glorify and love him to continue forever in adultery. This war only ends in your defeat or your destruction. Two different things. Let's look at the end of war. Verse 6. This is... Pay attention whenever you're reading Scripture and you see, but God, (laughs) anywhere. Because there's a powerful switch that happens. We just got a description, a strong description of human agency at work apart from God and what that creates. It creates wars, it creates murder, it creates covetousness, friendship and hatred of God, unfaithfulness. But God, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the end of war. God's grace completely overwhelms our rebellion. Do you believe that? You guys are too sad looking to believe that. God's grace completely overwhelms your rebellion. Look at that. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. The strongest betrayal that human language can describe, and God gives more grace. It's because he gives himself. Grace takes the form of his son. Who's it, who's it for? Who's this grace for? It's to everyone and anyone who comes face to face with God as an enemy. And holds out your sin and asks for forgiveness. When you lay down your ability to save yourself, to make yourself right before God, and you just come to God. You say, please fix this. He gives you his son. He says, yes, that's my desire. That's my deepest desire. But to receive Jesus as your savior, Savior requires this humble acknowledgement of your sin. It requires you to acknowledge that you are a sinner. It requires to acknowledge your pride and come humbled. He opposes the proud, and in his opposition of the proud, he humbles us and gives us grace through the humbling. He does this through the sacrifice of his son. So he gives his son to live a life for us, but he didn't just come to lie. Jesus came to die. That is the ultimate unmerited favor that we, does, that we get. Say so he dies 
for us. He pays the penalty of our rebellion. And so here, here's some questions for you. Do you, is what's wrong with you, does it require blood? Does it require blood? Can you, can you wash yourself off of water? Or does it require blood? When I was um, in grad school, I was a poor graduate student, and I had some kind of weird skin thing going on on my arm. This is probably too much information, but I'm sorry. Um, and I just was like, okay, if I put the right lotion on it, it'll go away. And I went, I, I did this for, I like battle, tried to battle it and knock it down myself for, I don't know how long, it was like months. And I was dating my now wife, and she saw it one day and like started yelling at me. I was like, oh. Um, and she was like, you need to go to the hospital now. There was red streaks starting to go up from it. I was like, eh, I could probably handle this on my own. Not too bad. She's like, no, you're turning septic. And so I go to the doctor, and I get a shot of antibiotics. And what I didn't realize is, I didn't realize how bad the situation had gotten. I thought I could wash myself with water and be okay. We think of our sin like that sometimes. We're like, no, I can, I can handle this. I'm going to cleanse my hands with this water that I can make. No. Submit yourselves to God. Cleanse your hands in his blood, you sinners. Purify your hearts with it. Have yourself united to his desires for you. Submit yourselves to God. Grace means that you submit yourself to God, you receive Jesus as your Lord, and you depend on him as your Savior. So there's two things there. And we like to kind of like have the version of Jesus that we want, right? So we either like him as Lord. Yeah, he tells me what to do, but I can handle my sin. Nobody's going to see that. Jesus, Jesus, don't worry about my sin. I can handle it. Or we like him as Savior, but then we don't want him to tell us what to do. Like, just, just forgive me. That's your job. Don't take ownership of me. So what about this be wretched and mourn and weep? Letting your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's it talking about here? It's talking about this process of identifying sin in yourself and being cleansed, being purified. Before God gives us grace, we delight in our sin. We rejoice in it. We're like, yeah, I took what I, what I wanted from that person, and now I want and there's a delight in it. There's a laughter of the wicked that he's talking about here. And so he's saying, receiving grace means that laughter gets turned to weeping. The laughter that you have with your wickedness, your enjoyment of sin, gets turned into hating it, to mourning it. It gets turned into gloom. So we need to understand the depths of our sin and how grace actually transforms those depths. And part of that is a mourning. It's a holy mourning. It's a weeping over our sin. And if you're uncomfortable going there, 
it probably means that you don't think that God actually gives you more grace. Like, yeah, he gives me a little bit of grace. But I don't want to look too closely at the implications of my sin. Because I think there's a limit to how much he actually gives me. I think I'm limited in that. He gives you more grace. You can enter into those depths and receive grace there. But there's also a a type of person, I'm probably like this, where I like to make my morning be penance. And so I go there and I get really morose and I'll stay and be very depressed and I'll try and turn that into kind of a work where it's like, oh, if I feel bad enough about my sin, then I've earned God's grace. But that's not how it works. He's saying you find God's grace there and your mourning which was for your sin, is turned into joy in receiving God's grace. That's verse 10. In the humbling, when you are humbled before the Lord, when you're weeping before him, he will exalt you. He will exalt you. This is a tense that is present and ongoing. So as you do this, as you confess your sin... As you mourn it, he's going to lift you up. He's going to meet you there and lift you up. And he's not going to stop lifting you up until you are resurrected with Christ. This process that we're looking at, it looks a lot like crucifying and being crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. doesn't stop there, though. We now live a life. Christ is at work within us. We are lifted up. We are resurrected with him just as we are crucified with him, the Lord will exalt you. So that's the end of war. We are defeated or we're destroyed. The offer is for you to be destroyed and for Christ to live in you. That kind of now gets lived out in practical ways. We're going to look at a couple of them. The first is how you treat people. So in verses 11 and 12, you see this, like it's a complete reversal of what was happening. It's like, okay, now that you have received God's grace, the victory that that brings you, don't speak evil about one another. Don't fight. The one who speaks evil or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver. Remember how you were humbled? There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbors? And so our posture towards each other should not be one of judgment. It shouldn't be one of condemnation. All right, we have to understand this word judgment because our culture thinks that any type of confrontation is a judgment. Like if you tell me something that I don't want to hear, then you're judging me. But that's not what he's talking about here. The judgment that he's talking about is a condemnation. It's a final proclamation about the status of that person. Saying, oh, you committed this sin, therefore you are a sinner and deserve death. That's the type of judgment he's talking about. But if you do that, you are taking the place of the lawgiver and the only one who is able to judge. Our posture towards each other should be one of lifting up, of encouraging, 
of offering the grace that we have been given, that we have received. How hypocritical would it be to cast a judgment on someone in that way when you're dependent on the very grace that you're withholding from that person? Give each other grace. Don't talk behind each other's backs. Give each other grace. So how you treat other people is one way of kind of like living in the victory that God has won for us. And then how you plan and act. Look at the, look at the end here, verses 13 through 17. You could do a whole sermon on this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whatever, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. How you plan and how you act. Notice how this is also kind of completely changing how we see everything in the, that happens in our lives. He's talking about people who are saying, okay, we're going to go here and trade there. And like, this is all in their own plan. And it's basically operating in that sovereignty of our own personhood. Thinking that we can control these things, that we have control over it. And James is here reminding us, no, receiving God's grace means that you are constantly made aware of your finiteness, that every day is grace. And you don't know when your span of life is over. You don't get to make that decision. I know we think we do, but we don't. And so think about it like this, and I think this is really the force that James is putting behind these words. We've just gone through a lot. We've covered a lot of territory, and I'm sure that there's probably things that have popped up in your mind. And if not, then you should probably be worried. <laughs> you should be like, oh, I should really do that. Mm, I'll do it tomorrow. I can, I'll plan to do that. I'll plan to repent. I'll plan to like, really think about receiving God's grace in that area. And what he's saying is, no, obey now. If you know the right thing to do, then don't delay your obedience. Because it's sin. It's a way of still operating in your own sovereignty. Submitting yourself to God, submitting yourself to the Lordship of Jesus, is receiving it in the moment and acting on it. So don't wait. You don't know if you'll have a chance tomorrow. Don't wait. If you have not yet wrestled with what it means to receive God's grace, don't wait. You don't know if you're going to be able to hear again what it means that Jesus came and died for you in your place and rose from the grave and now is offering himself to you even today. If you're a Christian and you think that that is kind of like, yeah, 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 I've done that. Go back to the cross. Remind yourself of your need for his grace. Remind yourself of the power of his grace. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, um, yeah, it's overwhelming. There's so much here, Lord, and there's so many different aspects of our lives um, that we need to submit to your rule and reign. There's so many aspects of our sinfulness that we are still trying to protect from your blood, still trying to pretend like we can fix on our own. And so, Lord, we need you to do what you say, that when we draw near, you are there, and that we find you not in judgment, but in an offer of mercy, an offer of grace through your Son. Lord, we are sinners that we have no ground to stand on except for your offer of your Son to us. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue.